Amen. Well, I think you've got on the back of your little uh, service note the, the passage, which might be helpful for you as uh, we look at uh, the next instalment in our uh, story for our time, Nehemiah. In uh, the news this week was this, another story of students at Magdalen College, Oxford, who voted to remove a picture of the Queen from their common room. Did you pick up that in the news? Uh, many have commented on the event and what it might signify, but not the Queen herself. It stems from a resolution that she made at the beginning of her reign to never complain and never, do you know what it is? Never explain. Never complain and never explain. And I, I, I should, the, the one thing I should explain though is, is, is why the screens are working as they are in church this morning. Some piece of kit has died. Uh, so now you're seeing in church what people are seeing at home on the screens, which is why we haven't put the big screen down, because you'd have a picture of me here and a picture of me over here. That would be too confusing uh, for, and then for the leaders as well. So, so apologies to those in the middle of the church. You might be able to see a screen here, but there are some slides coming up. Never complain, never explain. This idea of a resolution that you keep to, which the Queen has kept to all her life, it's something we see in today's passage. And if you look at uh, uh, your Bibles, if you brought them with you, or that, that passage on the back of your sheets, at verse 6 we read, So we rebuilt, says Nehemiah, the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. And you could translate that phrase, with all their heart, as with all their mind. That is, with a firm determination to get this task of rebuilding these walls of Jerusalem, or as we might say, you know, they had resolve to this task. Last week we saw how all sorts of people were involved in rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. How Nehemiah had inspired them that now the time was right, that he had the Persian king's personal blessing. The same king who 14 years earlier, in the companion book of Ezra, had told them to stop rebuilding the walls. But now the time had come to start again. And families and business people, civil servants, had all mucked in and did what they could, according to their means. Some rebuilding small sections of the wall just outside their homes, others larger stretches of the wall. So that together, this mammoth task of rebuilding these walls could begin to look within reach and we were encouraged last week to ask ourselves what part we can play in the equivalent task of building the church of Jesus Christ today, of rebuilding that regular pattern of weekly church attendance, as well as stepping up and stepping into uh, rebuilding our ministry teams, as we've got to do after the pandemic, as, as many things were stopped, as we begin to think of starting again, not quite sure when, but uh, we need think, how can we pay a part in that again? And when the church steps forward, it doesn't step into a vacuum. And there's often opposition and difficulties to be faced. And that's what we see happening in this next installment of a story for our time in chapter four of Nehemiah. And the first point I want to highlight this morning is this, that it's normal for the church to look weak. It's normal for the church to look weak. Sometimes if we're followers of Christ, we think, I wish the church was more impressive, had more impact on our nation. 
And yet it's often normal for the church to look weak. The church of Nehemiah's day had been reduced, in effect, to a small conquered country called Judea. And it was surrounded by other unfriendly nations. To the north were the Sumerians, led by someone called Sambalat. To the south, uh, in Idumea, were the Arabs led by, of Edom, led by someone called um, Geshem, Geshem. To the east were the Ammonites, led by uh, Tobiah, and to the west there were people in Ashdod. We don't know who led them. Surrounded by these four nations, top and bottom, left and right, Judea looked very weak. And the likes of Sambalat and Tobiah and Geshem, they wanted to keep that way. They liked the odds of four against one. And the first way we see this weakness is in the way that these believers were verbally despised and insulted. Hear us, O God, for we are despised, praised Nehemiah. They have thrown insults in the face of the builders, verses 4 and 5. We despise someone by holding them in contempt, as someone who we consider worthless, beneath our consideration. What are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Can they bring the stones back to life from the rubble? Sambalat has an army at his disposal, and the Jews do not, so he feels very secure in his contempt. Tobiah paints a picture of the pointlessness of what the Jews were doing. Even a light-footed fox crossing these restored walls would cause them to crumble, he says with hyperbole. Sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Well, these insults clearly did sting deeply. Nobody likes, do they, to be ridiculed for their faith. To behold, it's time to get on the right side of history. Your day has passed. It's our day now. And as well as being despised and insulted, the church of Nehemiah's day was also threatened and outnumbered. Verse 7, we read, When Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs of Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight Jerusalem and stir up trouble. And then verse 11, Before they know it or see us, we'll be right there among them and we will kill them and put an end to this work. Here is opposition that moves beyond words to deeds. All four of Judea's enemies working together in a concerted plot to put an end to this rebuilding work by force of arms. And there's a general sense of panic that took place. Wherever you turn, they will attack us, became the Twitter feed on everyone's phones and dominating the dinner table conversations. And I guess few of us will have known this sort of opposition but for many Christians throughout the world today, of course, this is their daily experience. Again, it makes the church look very weak and fragile. And then there's the actual task of rebuilding these walls. That wasn't in itself easy. Halfway through, the Jews were beginning to feel exhausted and overwhelmed. The strength of the labors is giving out, we read. There is so much rubble, we can't rebuild the wall. We haven't got the stone blocks to do it with. And so this task of rebuilding the church of its day, this physical community centered upon the one true living God, felt beyond them, that their energy was just 
running out. They were exhausted. Shoulders were beginning to droop. Heads were beginning to sag. Builders began arriving late and calling in sick. And Nehemiah wants to say to us, well, we get the idea as he writes his report that it's normal for the church to look weak. I find that reading something like the um, Barnabas Fund uh, magazines, and if you've come across uh, the Barnabas Fund, who help persecuted Christians in other parts of the world, and it um, helps us to make us aware of all the things that are going on in the world today, where Christians are really up against it. It really comes out in the usual news outlets, and so in the latest uh, magazine, read all about Myanmar and Eritrea and Somalia and Turkey with various degrees of threats and persecution for those who follow Christ. In the UK today, Christians are more subject to to ridicule, aren't we, as atheists hold the floor. And uh, if you want to find out more about uh, what's going on, I've got some back copies as you go out. Just take a copy with you and uh, have a read. But how should we respond to this state of affairs, to this experience of what it feels like to be part of a weak church then and now? Well, one option is we to seek revenge, to seek to get our own back, to get back on top, to flex our muscles. But look at what Nehemiah does. What he does is to pray and leave the matter in God's hands. Verse 4, hear us, uh, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their heads, he prays. Do not cover up their guilt. We can, in other words, leave these matters in God's hands. It doesn't really matter what others think of us. What matters is what God thinks of us, that we're uh, his friends and that one day justice will be done. But it doesn't mean that Nehemiah is simply passive. In this context of all these ugly threats and deadly plots, we can see his resolve and the church of his day's resolve to carry on with the task of rebuilding. True resolve, you see, is seen not when the going is easy, but when the going gets tough whether that's at home or at work or at church. And we need something of that same resolve, don't we? If we to rebuild church life here at St. Mary's, not just after the pandemic, but after decades and decades of uh, the church declining nationally here in Britain. But not over the world, the church is growing uh, at a pace uh, globally at the moment, which is so encouraging. So Nehemiah shows us that Even in weakness, the church, when it acts together, can achieve great things. Walls can be rebuilt, gates rehung, believing communities can be re-established. But there is more in this chapter simply than encouraging a deeper resolve in the face of difficulty. It's normal for the church to look weak, but we can also see in this chapter that we must remember that the Lord our God is strong. Don't be afraid of them, says Nehemiah. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. Nehemiah reminds the church of his day that they are not on their own, that they are the Lord's people. And the Lord their God is no minor deity. He is the God of heaven, the creator of that which is seen and unseen. He is great and awesome, omnipotent in being. Where we are weak, he is strong. He is uniquely eternal where we are fragile and mortal. He holds the world in his hands and everyone and everything within it. He is able, as Nehemiah puts it, to frustrate the plans of evil people. 
And knowing what happens when their enemies discover that they are ready for the attack and they're not going to get this easy victory, they decide to call it all off. But Nehemiah doesn't just say, well, clever us for foiling this plot. He says, God frustrated this. We are in God's hands and God is strong. Nehemiah knows that they are bound to the Lord by this covenant of love and that the Lord their God will not let them be destroyed, all of which helps to deepen their resolve. They can and will be able to finish rebuilding these walls because they are not on their own. So when they're disheartened and despairing, when the insults sting us and the threats sometimes feel very real indeed, we're to remember that the Lord is in control and it's not our enemies who hold the reins. It was wonderful to read in the, uh, the um, uh, March-April edition of uh, uh, the Barnabas magazine of what's been happening in Sudan. Uh, last year, uh, there was a new peace uh, concord between warring factions, and the blasphemy laws, which have really been very difficult for Christians in Sudan, were uh, abolished. And a declaration affirmed that the state will no longer establish an official religion as it had done with Islam. Uh, No citizen will be discriminated against based on their religion. And Nehemiah would say that that's God at work, frustrating the plans of those who would discriminate against his people. And that Christians can begin to know a different life in that country. How difficult has it been? Well, let me just tell you one quick story of uh, a Muslim clan chief called Abdallah Yusuf whose entire clan of around 100 people became Christians after he received a vision of Jesus in in his uh, dreams. The whole clan was arrested and given 100 lashes each and told they would face execution if they did not return to Islam. I don't know what happened to the whole clan, but Yusuf himself refused and was crucified by the Sudanese government in 1994. And if you're not yet a follower of Christ, would you agree that such an agonizing death, you wouldn't go through that unless you're absolutely sure that Jesus was indeed your only source of salvation and the only one who could give you life after death. And Yusuf had that vision, how encouraging it is, even though he laid down his life, that we can learn from that, of the reality of Jesus' presence in our world today. Well, it must have taken great resolve to die for what you need to be true rather than live for what you need to be a lie. And maybe we just that, that resolve just helps us to have resolve here this morning. So how then should we work out this biblical conviction that the Lord is strong, even when, humanly speaking, everything seems to look weak? Did Nehemiah send everyone home saying, well, we've prayed, guys, so everything is going to be all right? God is in control, so just go and sleep easily in your own beds. Well, prayer is, of course, a vital weapon in a believer's arsenal. J.C. Ryle, the great Victorian evangelical bishop, put it this way. Prayer is the mightiest engine God has placed in our hands. It is the best weapon to use in every difficulty and the surest remedy in every trouble. It is the key that unlocks the treasuries of promises and the hand that draws forth grace and help in time of need. It is the silver trumpet God commands us to sound in all our necessity. It is the cry he has promised to answer always. Prayer is the simplest means that man can use in coming to God. It is within reach of all, the sick, the aged, the infirm, 
the paralytic, the blind, the poor, the unlearned, all can pray. So pray we must, but prayer is not all that Nehemiah did. In verse 9 we read, but we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Indeed, people were stationed specifically at the lowest points of the wall, and orders were given to listen out to a trumpet that would blast to bring people to where the attack was. And he goes on to say, well, we continued to work with half the men holding spears and half working, and we did it from the first light of dawn till stars came out, and even at night they slept where they worked, and they didn't even change their clothes, and each had their weapon as they went for water. Nehemiah shows us that prayer goes with wisdom and hard work. They go together. The knowledge that God is strongly in control is there to strengthen our resolve, but not to make that resolve unnecessary. So, can I just ask personally, where would be the lowest point of the wall for you at the moment? Where are you most vulnerable to spiritual attack? as well as thinking about that as a, as a church. Where do you need to uh, watch and to pray and to use this weapon of prayer and to uh, come to God? And where do we need to pray together as a church so that our enemy, Satan, doesn't pick us off one by one? So often we try and face these spiritual attacks on our own and we find there's no one to cover our back when we need them. So it might be that um, we're most under attack in areas, I don't know, it could be money or relationships or, or what we look at on our computers or ambition or being people pleasers or, our, or health or unbelief. It could be all sorts of things that are at our weakest point. And maybe it's good just to say to someone, this is my weakest point, will you pray for me and stand with me as I seek to resist it? Well, Nehemiah shows us that it's normal for the church to look weak, but that we should also remember that the Lord our God is strong. But to finish, wouldn't it be great, sometimes we think, oh, wouldn't it be great if the church in Chesham and across Britain, across the world, was so strong that everyone would stand up and listen to us? And of course, in some countries of the world, the church is very strong, but not so much here in Britain today. And wouldn't it be great, we say, if Christian faith was taught in our schools proudly and confidently, and that Jesus' name was held high on our TV screens and in the corridors of power, and that people listened to us and, and learned and came and wanted to find out more about Jesus. It's natural to think in those terms, isn't it? To think, why isn't the church just more strong than it is? But Nehemiah points us to something that the Apostle Paul came on to teach us more fully in his second letter to the church in Corinth. In chapter 12, he, struggling with his own, his own weakness, with his own thorn in his flesh, he wrote of what God himself taught him. My grace is sufficient for you, and my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast, says Paul, all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. And that is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. In other words, this is the way we come to know Christ's presence and power in our lives. It's when we are weak, not when we are strong. It's when we are weak that we see our need of Christ. It's when we are weak that we see more clearly his power at work in our lives. Let us come to the Lord's table this morning in our weakness 
and take from him his strength. And as in his strength, resolve to build up our church in its mission and ministry, however long these restrictions last, and however long it takes to rebuild, let us have resolve in that task. Let's pray together. Father, would you reveal to us that's things we perhaps don't even see in ourselves, where we're at our weakest spiritually. And would you then please pour your strength into our lives. For we ask it in your name and for our great blessing. Amen.